For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Okay, so we're going to be, like I said, in Hebrews chapters 8 and 9, a little bit of 10, talking about this idea of the new and better covenant. What we've been talking about so far in the book of Hebrews is this idea that God has done something new in the time and in the period of Jesus Christ. But as we move into this section in chapters 5 through 10, the author of Hebrews is going out of his way very much to connect and to show that God has not changed, that God has provided for in Jesus a new way for us to approach him, a new way for us to connect to him, but that the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, they're the same God. It's not as though he woke up one day and said, you know what, I'm going to do things a little bit differently. But he had a plan from the very beginning, from the time of Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden, that he was going to bring the human race back into fellowship, back into connection with him, even though we had rebelled against him and brought sin into the world. And so we talked several weeks ago about the connections that the author of Hebrews is making and the role of the high priest. We talked about the Old Testament high priesthood and Melchizedek and this idea that Jesus is the new and final and ultimate high priest under the system that God had given them through Moses, that he had fulfilled the prophecy, he had come together, and now this picture The symbolism of the old covenant sacrificial system had been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. It's sitting there and they're they're thinking, what is wrong with the old way? What I'm trying to say for the original audience, the Hebrews, you know, they were raised with the Old Testament, with the sacrificial system. The entire picture of how they worship God comes from the book of Leviticus. There is a standing temple for this audience where the sacrifices are still being made. And so the question that they're wrestling with is, okay, we understand that Jesus has come and Jesus is the Messiah, so we're going to worship and we are going to be on board with the teachings of Jesus Christ. But they, they still considered themselves to be Jewish people. There was no uh, hard line between being a Jewish person and being a Christian person. They all just considered themselves to be essentially Jews, whether it was culture or by faith, who had believed that the new covenant had been brought in by Jesus, the planned Messiah. So you could imagine where, from their perspective, it would be, well, I still want to participate in the things. What about, you know, going to synagogue? What about the sacrificial system? What about the feasts and the festivals and all the things that, you know, have a a tenor to it that are deeply religious in, in their roots, but also are cultural and social? You know, I've done the Passover every year since I've been born and all of my ancestors did. Am I no longer going to do the Passover? Does that mean that I'm Jewish or does, what does that mean? So they were wrestling with this stuff. How should we think about the customs under which we've been raised? And furthermore, for us, a more contemporary audience, it's also kind of an interesting question. Should we or why don't we follow, we believe in the Old Testament, we believe it is from God, 
We believe that the rituals there have meaning. So why aren't we doing Yom Kippur? Why aren't we doing the festival of booths? Why don't we do Passover? How are we to understand that? And so the author gets into this in a very interesting and fairly complex way. We start with Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. He says, now the main point in what has been said is this. Not too often do we get the author telling us, this is the main point of everything I've said. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. So what he's saying here is, is that all of this stuff has been a picture of something that actually exists in reality. The tabernacle, you'll remember, was God's tent that he gave them very specific instructions on how to design and carry around when they were wandering around in the desert. And it was the symbol of God dwelling among his people. But all the Levitical priesthood was designed around things happening at the tent of of God. And he is saying that there is a true tabernacle, a true place, not made with human hands, not the tent, not the building, but a true tabernacle that Jesus, is, that Jesus entered in and actually paid for sin. And that's this picture of the temple in Jerusalem, the sacrificial system, the dietary laws, all the festivals. What they're saying is all of that is symbolic. It is a shadow of something that is real that was designed to teach people over a millennia about the truth of who God is and how to be close to him. Paul put it this way in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. He says, therefore, no one acts, no one is to act as your judge in regard to the food or drink or in respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's saying all those things were teaching tools to prepare us to understand what it would mean when God would come himself in person and die for our sins. And so all of those things are teaching tools, but once you understand what they are teaching, once you've come to the conclusion that God wants you to come to, they're no longer necessary. So his audience likely would have understood these symbols a lot better than we would, being Americans in the 21st century, but he goes through and he starts talking about the symbolism of some of the details of the sacrificial system, and that is important in understanding why they no longer need to be followed. So to do that, we zoom all the way out here, and we go back to Hebrews 9, and we read on. He begins to describe this, the, the pictures and the symbols of the sacrificial system. He says in verse 1, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which the lampstand and the table and the, and the sacred bread, this is called the holy place. And so if we look at an artist's rendition of the temple of Herod, first there was the tabernacle, the tent of meeting that, they, that was mobile and moved around with them. Then Solomon was chosen by God to build a permanent temple to God. It was like 
They were no longer moving around in the desert. They had established a permanent home in the land that God had promised them. So they built a huge temple, the Temple of Solomon, and the sacrifice would happen there. Then the Babylonians came in and destroyed that temple. And then slowly over time, through Ezra and Nehemiah and others, the temple began to be rebuilt. But it was much smaller. It was much less significant. And then when Herod the Great came to power, he decided, you know, he was going to kind of give this great expression of his power and his greatness. And so a massive renovation project went, uh, under, took place to build the temple up. So this is what it would have looked like at the time of Jesus. And it's known as Herod's Temple. This would have been the temple that was in place for the audience of Hebrews during their lifetime. And he's saying that there, was this, there were these courtyards and there was this inner sanctum. The inner sanctum is the tall building in the back there. And you go in there and there's what's called the holy place. The holy place was a fairly sparse place. It was a big open room. There was a menorah there, and the menorah was put there. It was kept, it was, uh, it stayed lit all the time, and it represented the light of God and the darkness of, world, of the world, the truth of God and the heart of God and who he is and his ability to show us the reality of the way that things are. There was a table there with 12 loaves of bread, and that bread was baked daily and placed there, and it marked the provision of, of God for the 12 tribes of Israel, that God would always provide for his people, but it had the secondary impact of the house of God would always smell like fresh baked bread. Kind of a cool picture. This was a very tactile, very sensory thing. And then there was an altar of incense that where they would burn incense, and this was to symbolize the pillar of cloud. This was to symbolize the ethereal nature of, of spiritual things how our prayers go up to God. And then in the back was this incredibly thick veil. Multiply veil. And no one was allowed beyond the veil except one person, the high priest, once a year for one specific reason. Because the idea and the symbolism behind this was God's throne room was on the other side of that veil. And we as sinful people cannot approach God because he will have to destroy us because he is just and we are wicked. And so that veil was the literal physical representation of the issue that we are cut off from God in a way that he did not intend, but that had to happen because of our rebellion. So we go back to Hebrews 9 and we read in verse 3, behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And so in that room, the priest, and we talked about all the symbolism behind the priest several weeks ago, that he wore a breastplate with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on his chest. He wore stones with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on his shoulders. The, 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 the costume itself of the high priest when he was to do this ritual had all kinds of incredible meaning, but the idea was, was that the priest was going in as a representative for the entire nation. 
And the priest himself was a sinful man and would need to offer sacrifices for himself and his own sin before he could go in and take part in this ritual. And so he would go into the holy place, past the menorah, past the showbread. And this is something that's written about with some trepidation. If you study different sources, they talk about things like tie a rope around the high priest's waist but as he went through the veil, because no one knew, maybe God will kill him. And, you know, no one would want to go in and get the body so they could just drag it out with a rope. That's the way, that's the, the seriousness with which they, they thought about this separation between God and man. And so he would go in past the veil, and there would be the raiders of the lark, lost ark, ark of the covenant. And this was the Ark of the Testimony was another name for this interesting chest. And it served as two things. It was the Ark of the Testimony and it was also considered to be the throne of God. They were literally, with great trepidation, once a year, one person, after elaborate rituals, going into the throne room of God. And what the author of Hebrews told us was there's three things inside the box. Not sand that lets ghosts free to melt off Nazis' faces but a jar of manna, which we talked about earlier. Remember, manna was the stuff, that, the food that would show up on the ground and they got sick of it and they said, God, we're tired of this perfect food that keeps us healthy and we have more than we could ever hope and need and we want meat because we're tired of the way it tastes. It said They said it was flaky and it tasted somewhat like coriander and they hadn't eaten anything but that, so they grumbled against God and said, give us meat to eat. And God gave them lots of meat to eat. But he said, take a jar of manna and put it in the ark of the testimony as a symbol of the people's rebellion against my provision. So manna, we don't know what it is. I put a jar of Nutella in there. It was, you know, the closest thing we would have today is probably ramen. Something that's super cheap, but like, we'll get the job done. The other thing he said to put in there was Aaron's rod because the people had rebelled against Moses and Aaron. And God told them, okay, if you want to rebel against me, everybody who thinks they should be the leader put their staff in front of the tent of meeting. And they came back the next day and Aaron's staff, which was an almond branch, had blossomed with almond blossoms. And they said, see, God does want Aaron and Moses to be in leadership. And he said, take the staff that's budded and put it in the ark of the testimony as a symbol of the people's rebellion against my leadership. So hopefully you're starting to get a sense of what the testimony is, right? The testimony is the rebellion of man. And probably most poignantly, you know, Moses went up on top of the mountain while the people remained below. And the finger of God carved the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And Moses came down and they were worshiping the golden calf. And Moses picked up the tablets and threw them and they cracked because the people had rebelled against God's law. And God said, take the broken pieces of the tablet and put them in the ark of the testimony, for the people have rebelled against my law. So the testimony was not a good testimony. It was filled with the symbols of the way that the people had again and again and again rejected God himself, sitting in that cabinet. And so the priest, with his elaborate robe, and the symbolism of, of his office would go and they would often take the cutest, fuzziest, 
most innocent looking thing that you could possibly find. Yes, I spent some time searching the cutest lamb I could find. Why did I do that? Well, other than just being a jerk, the point behind the sacrifice, the point behind what needed to die was that it had to be something that surely didn't deserve it. Often lambs were used in different sacrifices, and the specific sacrifice of Yom Kippur, they used two goats, and they're just not nearly as cute, so I wanted to show you the lamb first. But they would take two goats, and they would symbolically place the sins of the people on the goat, on the one goat, and release it. That's where we get the term scapegoat from. Is they would have two goats, and one would be released into the wilderness, presumably to be free, but probably to be eaten by a lion or something. And then they would shed the blood of the other goat, and they would take it into the Holy of Holies, and they would spread the blood across the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And the symbolism here that's so powerful, that's so meaningful, is the idea of the cherubim, which are angels who sit on top. Those are the two things with the, with the wings pointed towards each other. And they are looking heads down into the box. And what they're looking at is the sin of man. And so the blood, when it is spread on there, they look through the blood of an innocent sacrifice upon the sin of man. And that was the symbolism that was supposed to capture their imaginations and help them to understand that the penalty of sin is death, that there has to be punishment, there has to be wrath for all rebellion, for all the evil and hatred and selfishness and wrongdoing that we have brought into the world. A just God will not let that go unpunished. So the author of Hebrews goes on and says, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail, but we just did. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. So the point that the author is making to a Jewish audience who's still involved in the temple worship, is this was all temporary. It was symbolic. It was to teach us about something. And it was never intended to be permanent. The sacrificial system teaches the penalty of sin is death. Like God said to Adam, the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. Rebellion, selfishness, and evil must be punished. The point of it was to demonstrate in a very visceral, very palpable way that an innocent substitute could die in our place. And it was also clear from Old Testament times that the sacrifice and the entire system was a drama 
filled with symbolic meaning. It was a teaching tool that no one's sins were actually forgiven because an animal's blood was shed. And they knew this. They understood it. In Hosea 6.6 in the Old Testament, God says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than in burnt offerings. God is saying, it's your heart that matters to me. This is to show you and to teach you what's wrong with your heart and how things need to change. David, who was known after a man after God's own heart, said in Psalm 51, 16, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So he was a man who had deep intimacy with the Lord, and he understood the sacrificial system is a symbol. What you want are our hearts. This was completely understood. Isaiah 29, 13 to 14, the Lord speaks to rebuke his people. And he says, because this people draw near to me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts from me and their reverence for me consists of traditions learned by rote. He says, my problem with you guys is you do all the rituals, but you don't bother to think about what any of it means. And your hearts are far from me. It was also very clear from the very beginning of the, of the system that it was supposed to be temporary. It was never supposed to be the permanent way that we draw near to God. <clears throat> Jeremiah 31, 31 and 33 prophesies the coming of the fulfillment of of these symbols and says, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart, I will write it. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. That God will move in a different way that will be much more intimate, much more personal. And the law will not be written on stones of tablets, but the law will be contained within us after he's cleansed us from our sin. What the author of Hebrews is telling the Hebrew audience that already understands all of this Old Testament history and symbolism is that Christ is the reality. He is the point. He is the fulfillment of all of this symbolism. And hopefully if you know anything about Jesus, you know that that is true or that is not a leap of faith to believe that Jesus would be the fulfillment of that entire system. When Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist sees him, and what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Why is Jesus called the Lamb of God? Because he was the sacrifice that literally took away our sins. When Jesus was up on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, to tell us die, he was declaring that we had been made clean because of his death, that he was the innocent substitute, the sacrifice, the lamb of God, the true lamb that could take away all of our sin. And so the need to continue to do these rituals became obsolete at that point because we could look to the full picture 
of Jesus going to the cross. So the author of Hebrews goes on and says, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place, the true holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offers himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this is the reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. It was all pointing to and leading up to that moment and that time in history where the real substitute, the real innocent substitute could take the penalty for our sins upon himself. The idea that man cannot approach God freely because man is in sin was destroyed as Jesus cried out, it is finished from the cross. Isaiah 59.2 says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. God seems far off. God seems far away. He seems unaccessible, unreachable. We call out to him, and it seems like our prayers fall and drop lifeless to the ground. And then Jesus comes and dies for the sins of mankind to make us right with him again. And those who put their faith in him, those who accept that forgiveness, who accept that cleansing power of his death on the cross, they become born again, with new life, with spiritual life. Matthew 27, 50 through 51 records that while Jesus was on the cross, one of the things he cried out with a loud voice, and then he yielded up his spirit. And at the moment that Jesus died, that thick veil in the holy place that only the high priest could go past once a year after many washings and sacrifices, that veil that represented the separation between God and man because of our sin, says, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the veil fell to the floor. There would be no more separation because our sin had been paid for. Incredible. What an incredible fulfillment of a beautiful lesson. Back to Hebrews 10 now, in verse 19, he says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, now we really understand what that means, don't we? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full of assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We all now can have free access to God. We could be close to him. We can be so close that he will indwell us, that the spirit of God will come and live inside of us and help us and speak to us and give us strength and encouragement and guide us through this life. What's the point? 
The point is, is that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are one and the same. Yes, he's moved in different ways and he promised through many different prophets over a long period of time that there would be a fulfillment, but that fulfillment came in the person of Jesus Christ. And the reason we don't do all those rituals and we don't have all the calendars and the festivals and all the things that the Jews had was because while we can appreciate those things, we can admire those things and we can enjoy the symbolism of what they mean, we have Jesus Christ, the true and perfect fulfillment of all that God has promised. We know that animal sacrifice was a bloody, barbaric reminder. You know, when people see that and they're like, why, why, God, would you do that? That's so horrible. The little lammy, why? God says, I know. Look at it from my perspective. This is just a glimpse, a picture of the injustice of what you have done to each other. I love you more than I love these lambs. And look at what you've done. There must be punishment. It's also confirming that the way to God, a relationship with God, has always been obtained the same way. Not through sacrifice, not through ritual, not through religion, but through belief. Will you open your heart to God? Will you ask him into your life? Will you admit that you have broken things in your life and that you have sinned, that you have rebelled, that you have hurt people, that you have been selfish? And will you receive his gift of forgiveness? All the dietary laws, all the festivals, all the washings, all the sacrifices, those were sacrificial tools and they are no longer necessary. The question we need to ask now is what's in our box? What is the testimony? What is your testimony? What are the things which, in which you have rebelled against God and are you willing to own those things and allow the blood of Christ to wash you clean? Turn to him in faith and say, there's some ugly things in there, God. I know that I've rebelled against you. I know that I've hurt people. I know that I've been selfish. And I don't have any hope that I can change. But if I can be forgiven and if that's enough for you, then come into my life and let me join and belong to your family. God promises that if you turn to him with that in faith, he will come into your life. He will indwell you with his spirit. And he will begin to teach you a better way, a way that's fulfilling, a way that's meaningful, a way that brings you joy, and a way that makes you able to love others in a much greater and much more powerful way. For the rest of us, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What happened to the temple? The temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Utterly obliterated. And has not been rebuilt. But the, the temple of God, Jesus says, 
is the family of God, the people of God. That if you invite God into your life, you receive the Holy Spirit, you accept God's forgiveness through Jesus' death on the cross. The Spirit of God doesn't dwell in a temple, it dwells in you. And you are mobile temples of the power of God sent forth into the world to bring the light of God, the bread of God, the truth of God, the heart of God, the love of God to the far reaches and corners of the earth. You are the light to be brought into the midst of the darkness. And God's effort now isn't come and see a temple in Jerusalem. It's bump into a genuine follower of mine who is willing to live in boldness to show you the love that I have for all of my children. It's a much better system. Although, you have to wonder why he would trust us with so much. But that is what it is when we talk about walking with God. It starts with that moment of faith. I'm a sinner God who needs forgiveness. And then it begins to morph into, God, I've experienced your love. I've experienced your power. Now help me to love others the way that you have loved me. And that is the mission in the heart of every Christian. Is to understand that and to live that out. And boy, do we make a mess of it. But there are people, all of us here, who have made that decision have been in contact with people who have demonstrated the true love of God to us. They were sinful people. They were fallen people. They were broken people. They had problems. But there was something that we saw in the light and the life of those people that could only be explained by the God of the Bible. And we pray and hope and desire that we could be used like that in the lives of many others. One question to ask is, what if these early Jewish Christians knew all this, understood this, and they're like, yeah, but you know what? We're going to go and we're going to celebrate the festivals and we're going to go to the temple and we're going to do all that too, just to be case. We need to cover our bases. Well, you can see what an affront that would be. My friend Ben Faust has a, a great illustration that I just have to steal here because the new Star Wars trailer just came out, and he's a big Star Wars fanatic. And he talks about, you know, what if we watch the trailer and, you know, we're like, oh, that's awesome. And what is the trailer doing? It's portending. It's showing us what is to come. And what if the day of the movie comes out and, you know, you call up and you say, let's go to the movie. And you're like, no, I'm going to stay home and watch the trailer. (laughs) That's what it's like to worship the symbols Instead of the real thing, don't settle for a taste of what it's supposed to look like when you can have the real thing. And that's what it's like if they were to go and go back and use the sacrificial system, what they would be saying is Jesus' death was not enough. i got to kill this lamb just to make sure. And it demonstrates this incredible lack of understanding of the greatness of what God has done. Similarly, As modern Christians, when we try to earn God's love, when we try to do things in hope that God will love us more, we do the same thing. We deny the reality of the greatness of what God has done. 
One of the most troubling things I heard in the first year I was a Christian, I was 18 years old, and this 83-year-old woman at the time named Martha, who had been raised as a missionary in Africa, she was so hardcore, she looked at me at home church one day and said, you know, God will never love you more than he does right now. And I was devastated because I wanted to earn it. And I think that's why she told me. She saw that. I wanted to do good things. I wanted to be favored. I wanted to be better. And what she was saying was, God cannot love you more because of what you do, because he loves you fully and completely and with his whole self. He already died for you on the cross. How could he love you more? And if you need proof that that's how God is towards us, all you need to do is consider that fact. He already died to rescue you before you were born, before you had done anything. And so when we go and we try to earn God's love or we try to make a name for ourselves or we try to puff ourselves up by what we do, all we're doing is we're saying, Jesus' death wasn't good enough. I want to add to my accolades and try to earn something that God has already given me for free. We'll wrap up with this, the end of Hebrews chapter 9, 27 and 28. He says, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. Uh-oh, you know what just happened there? That's uh, reincarnation out the door. That's the proof text. That's one of the most important texts to understand why Christians don't believe in reincarnation. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, those who eagerly await him. And that's why we look with excitement for the Lord to come back, knowing that the first coming was to come and to pay for our sins, and the second coming is to set things right to take away all pain, all suffering, all evil, and all injustice. But the thing is, is that all evil and all injustice includes many of us unless we turn to him in faith and allow his death to pay for our sins. And that is our hope for you. That is our hope for our family and for our loved ones is that they would understand the rich meaning of how God has moved over thousands of years to tell us the same thing over and over. You are valuable. You are loved. I want to be in your life. But we have a problem. And that problem can only be solved through Jesus. God, when I look at the, the meaning and the history that's preserved over 3,000 years and how it all tells the same story, I'm deeply encouraged to know that you are the same God today and tomorrow and forever. To know that you love us, that you want to be involved in our lives, that you want to use us to help other people, and that you have an eternity planned for us of love and fellowship and connectedness, of relationship. It's just too amazing, too incredible to pass up. And we just pray, God, for anyone here that doesn't know you, we pray that they'll open the eyes of their heart 
and that they'll soften to at least ask more questions and begin to really pursue answers about who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.